Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Did You Read with Tim Montgomery. Welcome to Did You Read, the opinion podcast from The Times. My name is Tim Montgomery, and today I'm joined by Rachel Sylvester, Faye Schlesinger, and Matthew Said. David Cameron has carried out a reshuffle for women after the purge of the pale, stale males. How patronising. The truth is the Tories are struggling to get local associations to choose female candidates, and they've failed to tackle the off-putting culture of the House of Commons. All the parties need more than tokenism to woo women voters. In 1961, a new law challenged the so-called sanctity of life and raised fears of a slippery slope and the untimely death of thousands. That law legalised suicide. This week, Lords will debate assisted dying, which crosses another line by giving doctors a proactive hand in death. With the right controls, it makes compassionate and practical sense. In an ageing society, governments cannot shirk responsibility for helping people to die well. There is a proposal to make honesty lessons for new MPs compulsory. I think this is silly. The problem with trust in politics is much deeper. Politicians are required to conceal their real views in order to toe the party line. Deceitfulness is built into the system. Politicians are, in a sense, professional liars. I think with only a few caveats, this should change. Well, those are our topics for today. And Rachel Sylvester, we're going to start with uh, yours. And we are recording on Tuesday morning. People will be listening to this throughout this week and they may know more about the reshuffle than we do. We know that Gover's gone, Hager's leaving the Foreign Office. It's a pretty dramatic reshuffle. But let's leave that for another day. Let's focus on the column that you wrote in Tuesday's Times about David Cameron's attempt to introduce more women into his cabinet. And you're more worried that we may get a few more women cabinet ministers but overall you think he's losing the battle to deliver equality inside the parliamentary conservative party well first of all of course it's excellent to have more women around the cabinet table that can only be a good thing and there are some very good women who are being promoted i think of nikki morgan liz truss these are women who've proved themselves in more junior ministerial roles and definitely are up to a job at the cabinet table but what i think it the danger is that it looks like sort of slightly patronizing tokenism oh we're going to have lots of women around the top table when actually the conservatives meanwhile are struggling to recruit women as candidates in their associations i've seen the latest figures produced by the constitution unit at mm. ucl on the recruitment of female candidates by the tories and the, the tories are doing much worse than the labor party in their winnable seats mm. so it's something like 22 are, are they doing worse than in previous say five years ago or is it just I don't worse have the than comparative, Labour? I don't yeah. have the comparative figures for five years ago. Probably not I'd say but where they were they're going backwards is the problem. So just over the weekend in South Suffolk there was a woman on the long list but she didn't even make the short list and then she didn't get chosen in the end mm. or to replace Tim Yeo as the MP there. The, what uh, people at Conservative headquarters are worried about is that they are pushing women they've introduced a new video showing uh, you know for, for people 
people who are selecting candidates, how you choose an MP, what an MP does. And they've got lots of women, lots of ethnic minority MPs going about jobs, not just speaking at the dispatch box, but sort of hugging old ladies in old people's homes and things to try and subliminally change a perception of politicians. Mm. But still, the association seem to be choosing more, 80% of men in these winnable seats. And out of, I think out of the, it's, it's more than two thirds in the seats where MPs are retiring, they've been replaced by a male candidate. So although I do think David Cameron is genuinely committed to this at one level, and he does want to change the, the culture and the perception, there's a danger that it looks like trying to appeal to women voters who have gone off him, mm. rather than actually really fundamentally changing the culture, both of the Conservative Party and of the Commons. Uh, uh, do you think it will make a difference, the fact that there are now going to be women holding positions like the education office, the, the DEFRA position? Because one of the things that the Conservative Party says is actually it's not just that few women are being selected as MPs, but actually few women are applying to be MPs. So if you look at the sort of the rough proportion of the number of women who are becoming MPs and who are on the Tory candidates list, it's actually pretty similar, but perhaps for reasons about like how seen people like Maria Miller treated or whatever, women aren't wanting to go into this There's a world. wider issue, isn't there? I think that's true for all parties about Parliament and the culture of Parliament. The, it's not just the hours, it's not just the sort of uh, unpredictability of a political career. And women like to be in control of their lives, in control of their professional lives, particularly. Mm. And in politics, you're completely out of control often. And a lot of time is sort of wasted, if you like, hanging around. Often an inefficient way of getting things done, women think. And then there's the whole sort of yabu culture. There was a report out this week about why women find it alienating mm. the culture of the House of Commons. And a lot of women MPs are saying that actually the expenses scandal and the changes to the expenses regime have made that worse because it's harder for them to have to manage two homes. It's harder for them to sort of juggle this family and work. They've got a family in the constituency, a life in London. And it's it's incredibly difficult. And I think unless we tackle that, so it's not just the candidate selection, it's also the culture. The whole, the whole, culture the whole thing. You're not going to get yeah. women applying to be MPs. Faye, one of the things that uh, Rachel criticised in her piece was the idea that on Monday we had the men's day when all the men were sacked, the purge of the middle-aged white men. And then on Tuesday, we're having the Women's Day. Uh, uh, Rachel said it was a bit like Ascot. Um, <laughs> did you find that slightly odd in the sense that it was... Did you find almost I mean, women are being used slightly as a cosmetic front or... Is it just about managing the I mean, news? Rachel's absolutely right. There has been. The Men's Day was yesterday, Monday, and today, Tuesday, is going to be the Women's Day. We're going to see mm. a, a, a sort of whole um, slew of rising stars, many of which will be women. I agree with Rachel on the grassroots point, and I do think it's really important to get people up from the bottom. But I do, to, to answer your question, yeah, I do feel a bit uncomfortable about it. What Rachel says about the idea of it can only be a good thing having more women around the Cabinet, I'm not sure that's true. It can only be a good around the Cabinet table. That's not true because it can only be a good thing if they're good in their jobs and I do think you know obviously at the grassroots level that's really important without having those people coming up how have you got any hope of having good cabinet ministers I'm loath to raise Chloe Smith because she gets hauled out every single time however she was the 29 year old um, promoted to the cabinet she was clearly out of not quite the cabinet I think sorry, it was sort of a junior right, minister she role yeah. Minister, yeah. Right. she was put up if, uh, with Jeremy Paxman on mm. Newsnight it was all very embarrassing one of the famous famous destroyed. moments of Paxman's I know, career poor yeah. Chloe Smith I'm sure she's very good in lots of areas but mm. she was clearly out of she her she wasn't depth. ready she wasn't ready at all and it's not fair 
fair to do that and neither is it fair on the country to put people in positions but if they're not ready and I slightly worry that there's a risk that by saying Cameron saying I will put women up that he's put women up who I, I agree ready. with that Faye but I, th- I think on this occasion I wonder whether Cameron has people like Nicky Morgan and Liz- I think they might be ready Amber Rudd is, yeah, absolutely. and some of the criticism that David Cameron's getting is fair but the idea that he's just doing this before an election I think it's slightly unfair because actually I think he's waited and unlike the Chloe Smith example unlike Maria Miller he's waited I'm not convinced that Esther McVeigh is ready if she's one of the people promoted but some of the other people are ready Matthew uh, Said we're, we're talking about women it's not the only problem of parliament in terms of representation ethnic minorities people from working class backgrounds there's a recent statistic that said 54% of the top people being selected um, for labor are actually all people from political backgrounds, Mm. people who've been researchers, etc. Is there a worry that in all the focus on the representation of women, we're forgetting other dimensions of of, of Parliament's composition? Yeah, I think that is right. And I think we need people with broad experiences. And this actually fits into one of the things that I think is deeply patronising about this reshuffle, the idea that any uh, male who is white and over the age of 45 is pale and stale. Mm. What do we think a good cabinet minister is? Why is experience synonymous with being stale? Mm. The problem is we shift them around all over the place without them developing any thorough, deep and profound knowledge of the brief. We need to redefine what we think of as a good politician, not just how they get on with Jeremy Paxman, but the political decisions they make. Mm. And that requires people from different backgrounds with different types of knowledge and experience. But if you, if you look, though, Philip Hammond probably going to be foreign secretary Uh, the people listening to this podcast may know more than we do michael fallon going to defense osborne and may staying where they are there's there's actually a lot of stability Mm. in the government as well which i think has been one of david cameron's strengths since he became prime minister he hasn't liked moving people that much so he might have got the mix right i quite like that bit of cameron's methodology as prime minister i think the problem we've had not just in politics but beyond is the idea that abstract reasoning people who score highly on iq tests can be parachuted in just about any area of human endeavor whether it's a new department in a company or a new brief in politics and be able to navigate their way around very complex uh, dimensions of knowledge that has been proved comprehensively to be flawed by almost every experiment in cognitive psychology in the last quarter century. It's only just filtered through to our current Prime Minister, but it certainly hadn't to previous ones. And I think we really do need to think much more carefully about the way we uh, equip our politicians and the way we recruit them to ensure that they've got, got the right knowledge base to make the right decisions. It's also about what what are your ministers there to do? Are they there effectively to sell the government's mm, message, right. a kind of cosmetic group of people who look good in front of the cameras? Which might or, partly be why Nicky Morgan is the new education secretary. Yeah, or are they there to change reforms. the country and sort yeah. of make things better? And that's actually a good example. Michael Gove was, uh, was doing a very good job at education and changing schools, tackling the vested interests there. And I'm slightly surprised that Liz Trump who was his right-hand woman in that department for many years wasn't promoted to the top job and I just wonder whether she, like Gove, was just a bit too radical for David Cameron and he wanted somebody to calm the waters. Very com- Nicky Morgan's very competent but she isn't the radical that I think yeah. Liz Truss would have got been. them the wrong way around, haven't they? Liz it's Truss strange, and Nicky but Morgan. But I think that must have been deliberate. He must have thought, I don't want, I want to soothe this. I don't want it to be, I don't want a radical there any longer, Bef- which is a shame. Before we move on, 
I didn't agree with all of your article by any means, Rachel. But <laughs> one of the things I found most compelling was your point about, okay, so we're getting more women inside the cabinet. But what about the inner political teams around the leaders? And the fact is, we I know in the concern... I actually couldn't believe it. When I was thinking about it yesterday, I, I emailed as many people as I could think of to say, have yeah. I got this wrong? Because I genuinely couldn't think of a single strategist in any of the political parties who's doing a, who will be running the general election campaign next mm. year. And there, there genuinely isn't a single woman in any of the teams who will be deciding what message goes to the voters in 2015. And that is actually pretty extraordinary. They're going to spend hours and hours doing focus groups with women, you know, web chats with mums now you know endless kind of polls to swing female voters mm. but actually they don't sort of feel a woman's judgment is necessary there's something that Harriet Harman to her credit has repeatedly argued um, within the Labour Party but there isn't an equivalent sort of character in the Tory party to make that case okay well thank you for that uh, we will undoubtedly return to the reshuffle and perhaps we will have a special reshuffle podcast in the next day or two as well but Faye your topic for us today is um, the very um, controversial topic of um, assisted uh, dying. And uh, the Times carried a piece by the current Archbishop of Canterbury on Saturday, which for Times subscribers, if they want to go to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central, I will post up so that you can read it. And he was taking the uh, traditional church view against assisted dying. But the real potential bombshell in this debate was intervention by one of his predecessors, George Carey, who has opened, changed his mind and thinks that assisting dying is now justified. And you agree with him? I do. I've thought long and hard about this, and I do think it's a really difficult issue. This wasn't something that I immediately said, oh, yes, I must agree, you know, it's it's progress. Um, I think it's difficult, and I do think there are risks that come with it. Mm. If you look, I mean, the reason I sort of talk in my precy about 1961 is I'm trying to make this comparison between what at that time would have felt quite frightening, I think, to say we're going to allow people to take their own lives, which is basically the government almost approving of it. It's saying we don't think there's anything wrong with you taking your own life. And at that time, not just for religious reasons, but for kind of um, humane reasons, it would have felt quite frightening. And I, and I feel that now. I can feel that right now there's a slight, you know, doctors are there to help us to get better to bring it to its you know, most reductive um, edge. Obviously, they help us die and they will give us morphine and things and they'll facilitate that. But, but proactively, they're never there to facilitate death. And, and what this law would do is actually give them the means to buy or to, to prescribe medication for somebody so they can take their own life. The reason I, I, I've come to the conclusion that I do think it's a good thing to legalise assisted suicide, assisted dying, is because it's partly due to compassion. And, you, you know, if you imagine your own relative going through inordinate amounts of pain, they're going to die anyway because this would only apply to people who have got a terminal illness and have got mm. six months or less to live. So it's quite restrictive, quite... Um, um, limited in its scope, then there is a compassion side. Equally, we have got an ageing society. We can't live in the same legal framework that we have for centuries because people are living so much longer. We've got medical advances that keep us alive way beyond what physically we would ordinarily be able to do if left mm. to natural means. Therefore, let's not just leave it to natural means. Let's look at what Holland's done and there, 3% of there people die There is a big difference between, between medical intervention that prolongs life artificially, though, mm. and medical intervention 
intervention that ends life. There is. We've and got to be ca- careful about that distinction. That's we? true, although often people will have had the medical intervention first to prolong their life. They might have had treatment for cancer, for example, which has given them another 10 years. Therefore, their body is surviving while they become, you know, racked by another illness, whatever it might be. So you can't quite separate those things off. You could say, what we'll just do is allow doctors to withdraw medicine. They already do that. We, we know they do that and they will take a view on that. This is more proactive. It's for people who are not able to go out, find the drugs themselves, you know, find some other means of killing themselves. And I do think for compassionate reasons it does make sense. Matthew Said, there's a letter in Monday's Times from various groups, including disability groups, and their worry is that if we go down this direction, there are a lot of disabled people who are quite a burden in inverted commas on mm. society mm. certainly cost on their relatives not every relative is the compassionate relative mentioned by Faye who wants an easy pain-free death for their relatives there's a lot of greedy people out there mm. as well we've seen them in CCTV cameras in care homes etc the worry of uh, passing this law and the downside the danger is that those people who are already vulnerable will feel pressure to die and not necessarily want to die. Do do you share those worries? I totally share them. And I um, watched my beloved maternal grandfather die about this time last year. And two things struck me. Firstly, precisely what Faye was saying. It seems to me there's no valid moral distinction between deliberately hastening somebody's death who's in terrible pain rather than just withdrawing medication and allowing them to die over a longer time period mm. whilst, in, whilst in agony. That seems to me to be a, a really sensible move. But you're absolutely right. When somebody is very ill, they're very vulnerable. It's difficult to think clearly when you're in pain. It's difficult to make rational decisions. Um, one can easily imagine family members who are not as ethical as the ones that are often described in you know, the compassionate archetypes, uh, putting a bit of undue pressure if they need a bit of money from the inheritance. And I think that's the reason why the moral justification for uh, ending life proactively, I think, is, is extremely powerful. But one needs very, very clear safeguards. Um, the signing off of two doctors and all sorts of other things, which are, you know one would want to. Although the two do. doctors' rule has hardly been enforced in the abortion. Rule. Yes, well, one would want it to be enforced yeah. very scrupulously because I'm just speaking from my own experience. You know, when you're when one is ill in bed, one is not thinking clearly, and one yeah. is very amenable to the pressure of other do, people. Do, 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 uh, do you take any comfort there? Because Faye is only arguing for it, and the the Falconer Bill is only arguing for assisting in the case of terminally ill people. Mm. These aren't just people. I personally would worry Matt Ridley did, about a slippery slope. Matt Ridley did a very good article in the Monday's Times against the idea of a slippery slope. But if it is someone who's terminally ill, if they've given a advance will of some kind... We're all terminally ill, Tim. We're all, <laughs> well, we're all, <laughs> we forget about I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's civilization. Is I think a, the terminally ill with six months to live is, I think, the Falconer. I just think that that's... You don't buy that. I, I think it's, 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 it's conceptually nonsensical. I mean, the idea that a doctor can uh, accurately describe somebody's lifespan and that six months is a cut-off, I mean, it seems to me that we should give people more latitude to make decisions over what they do with their lives and when to end it. And provided there are safeguards in place, it seems to me that people should be free to make that decision. We're all going to die. You know, mm-hmm. we, 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 no one in this room will be alive in 100 years. 
Rachel Sylvester, the, the public opinion polls are incredibly clear. Um, I think people who take my view are sort of only about 13 or 14 percent. Faye, sort of 70 percent would agree with the position that she's proposed today. Is, is this an, an area where Parliament will soon have to get in line with the public and we will have assisted dying laws on the statute book? I think there probably will be something. I think there's an issue that doctors are effectively doing this in a lot of cases, or in some cases anyway, there have yeah. been some high profile cases. So what, what there is always a danger when the law has not kept up with the reality, and then the law becomes an ass. And it's, uh, you know, I think obviously there are huge complex moral issues, which is reflected in the fact that even the bishops and the archbishops can't agree past and present mm. you know this isn't just a question for politicians really it's a question it's a question for religious leaders too but i do think there probably will be some kind of reform just to keep the law up to date with the reality mm. and if the law doesn't keep pace with reality then then there are huge problems that go beyond just this one issue there is an argument though that actually the law keeping behind reality can be quite positive i'm going to slightly argue the other <laughs> side one i believe but um there is a kind of argument that by having a law that says this is technically illegal but by in practice allowing some flexibility in that law whereby we see people who are taken to Dignitas regularly and they're not, it's actually very rare 29 people went to Dignitas from Britain last year and not one I think was prosecuted or, mm. or didn't go through anyway there is an argument that that actually stifles the behaviour that we want to be stifled but obviously we don't want suddenly thousands of people to um, seek um, a way of, of dying unless they absolutely need it. So there's an argument that we should allow the law to just stay a step behind, to stifle. I think that what actually it will still remain a step behind for the very reason that what we're talking about at the moment is only terminal illness. When we look at the cases that have come up and that have provoked this debate, actually they're often people that aren't terminally ill. They're people that have locked-in syndrome or are un unable to mm. even physically reach the medication they would want to kill themselves with. That's another step we have to take. So even if this Falconer bill goes through, there will still be much debate beyond that. This is just the first baby step. Okay, well, th thank you for that topic, Faye. And um, we'll move on to our third and final topic that's from, from you, Matthew. And you said a shocking thing. Politicians are professional liars and you want it to change and you're not entirely convinced that honesty lessons will deliver this change. So, so how will we deliver this change in culture that you would like to see in our in our politics. Well, I must say that, that I stood for Parliament in 2001 for Labour in Woking. And it was extraordinary how one went into it hoping to express opinions and convictions and beliefs that had been constructed over many years of, mm. of careful thought. And how naive that sounds now looking back. I remember going to Millbank Tower and we were told, don't think any independent thoughts and certainly don't express them. It might come back to bite the party if there's a difference even between you and an unwinnable seat and what the party is saying. And that's perfectly understandable. The media picks up on division. But the implication of this and collective cabinet responsibility is that politicians are required to publicly endorse with great uh, body language demonstrating their sincerity policies they don't agree with. And it turns them into liars. It turns them, psychologically, the effect of this is to turn them into brilliant, highly skilled, very adept, professional liars. The expenses scandal isn't the reason we've lost faith in politics. The reason we've lost faith in politics is because even those who don't wrongly claim on their expenses write their memoirs and say, 
I disagreed with A, B, C, D and E in Cabinet, but of course I defended it publicly and gave it my all on question time because of the doctrine of Cabinet responsibility. You, you can't have it any other way, Matthew. Imagine no, you if we had all the ministers saying, well, yes, I am a member of David Cameron's Cabinet, but his position on Europe I just don't support at don't, all. Tim, don't under... That, that I think, is... is in, in my, don't want to get too energetic. You I can be as robust as you like. Right. I, I don't think, mind. I think Tell me is, I'm talking rubbish. I think that is rubbish. Right, OK. <laughs> because it, it, it carries an unspoken implication, which is that concealed differences, which the public are aware of, but are uncertain about their extent or scope, that uncertainty, by the way, creates its own informational problem, are better than open differences. That, it seems to me, is wrong in terms of information theory. It seems to me it's wrong in terms of what we know about hospitals, for example, that disclose when doctors make errors. They have fewer negligence claims. The openness fosters a learning culture. What we have at the moment is concealed differences, concealed mistakes, and an absolutely poisonous political culture. Rachel, are you with me or Matthew in this great debate? I'm with Matthew. I'm oh, with no! I think, I think he's completely right. You look at the reason people like the coalition actually was when there was a sense of open openness and honesty that people were able to say we are two parties coming together in the national interest to do mm. certain things obviously there have been problems within that but people like that concept people like Ken Clark's refreshing honesty people like Boris Johnson people like Nigel Farage they like the politicians but they also who like to know what they're voting the for don't they and if how all the politicians certain? are saying different things how can you know what you're voting absolutely. for absolutely it's really no. we do need we need some consistency Dishonesty. no we need <laughs> a, I love the fact that Matthew says they're brilliant and adept I love these brilliant and adept um, MPs even if they're brilliant and adept at lying we do need a line you know we can't we've got a, a whole heap of MPs we do need something that the public you know let's take ourselves out of this Westminster bubble and say you know I'm a member of the public I've only got sort of 10 minutes a day to look at what's happening in the news I need to have some sense of where the government's going on different issues and I can't have a cacophony of voices I need to know where we're heading with that the public doesn't the listen other, to politics anymore and the reason they don't listen is they know that when politicians say things they are dissembling and spinning if they knew that these opinions were sincerely held and honestly like Boris Johnson and Ken Livingston and an Farage extent, how yeah, do we uh, isn't extent, that about right. presentation and the <laughs> way bit. they come across as very honest you know they've got this kind of wonderful off the cuff way of speaking or you know they say things that seem a little bit they swear or they bring in fantastic look, words ca- look, look, look capitalism works because it is a free market of ideas ideas dressed up as products ideas dressed up as websites that ferment doesn't confuse consumers. They can st- I mean, there are difficulties, and these have been well discussed. You know, where consumers satisfice, to use the, the term, because they can't, as it were, figure out precisely what they need because of the plethora of different products. But capitalism works. Centrally planned economies are trying to stifle dissent by having one policy for economics or one policy for oil production collapsed. It just has one huge failure. What we need in part, don't underestimate the extent to which lots of different ideas circulating around can nevertheless produce far greater progress than this management style straight jacket. We're all got to spout the same thing. That exists within limits. Of of the Whip's office in the House of Commons, which just seems, I think it's another reason women don't want to join the House of Commons because very few women, actually very few people, but particularly women, don't like that sense of tribal loyalty that you have to put your opinions out there. But Rachel Sylvester, I've got the, the number one reason why people don't like politicians is because of broken promises, the sense that when politicians say something, they don't mean it. If there's no chance of any form of accountability, if there isn't harmony of a 
political message. Well, you could still have a manifesto of these are the things we're going to do as a party. And if you want to stand as a Labour MP or a Conservative MP, but you you and Matthew will be happy for them to say, well, yes, it's in the manifesto, but I don't agree with it. No, because there'd have to be a core. Well, Matthew would, wouldn't you? You'd be happy to say that. There'd have to be a core set of principle policies that you signed up to. I I would say. Well, so a party. Absolutely, a party. (laughs) Sorry to interrupt. No, but I think (laughs) I think Rachel is absolutely right. The party would take a view on whether there is a minimum threshold of sufficient endorsement for the policies that are currently official. And then the people within that party would obviously, by implication, have signed up for these core doctrines. But I don't think there's any problem at all with dissent around that. I don't think the public would be confused. And there'd be no problem with promise breaking. You're describing what happens now. We have votes in Parliament and we have rebels. And they rebel. And sometimes they get chucked out of government for rebelling. And actually, then they get let back in. They do. And they do do go off message when they want to and when it's very, very important. Or they lobby the Prime Minister or they lobby whoever they're going to try and push. And they get those messages through. What we can't have is total chaos it's too messy it's so something between is, ca- is capitalism chaotic yes free market economy. but is it successful if the times suddenly went totally science. off message look at science, and went for example companies. look at science science is, science is built on scientists disagreeing with each other its success is precisely because of dissent it's precisely because people feel entitled to critique and be skeptical about particular empirical theories that science progresses but you, even within capitalism you've got say you've got individual companies they still have a company message and that message will be consistent within that Absolutely company right, within the yeah. times so I, I agree with you look we can't have every single MP and minister agreeing all the time, but there has to be something between what you're arguing and what I'm arguing, which is kind of the ability to have dissent when it's necessary, but not at and every Tim moment. thought we should squeeze this part of the discussion. <laughs> <laughs> it's taken off. Final point to you, though, to try and be devil's advocate, Faye. Um, I was really quite taken aback by an opinion poll finding that I saw on Sunday. It was about the child abuse issue. 75% of people thought there had been child abuse by leading political figures in the 70s and 80s. 75% of people thought it had been covered up. Only 4 or 5% of people disagreed. Only 4 or 5% of people disagreed. More people believe Elvis is still alive. Mm. There really is an incredible trust problem, isn't there? So I don't agree with what... Matthew's proposed, Rachel seems to have endorsed, but (laughs) something has to change in the way our politics is ordered because that gap, that lack of faith in politics is is. I do agree with that. And actually, that's very interesting because what you've got there is probably, and I'm going to slightly uh, agree with uh, what Matthew Rachel has been saying, in that no MP can right now stand up and say there was no, or I don't believe there's any evidence of child abuse because they would be immediately slapped down again because because of the weight of public opinion. So I agree that is difficult. Um, And I think there are these situations we slightly get ourselves into, and partly it's actually media coverage that does this, or it gets sort of hyped up excitement around it, where actually you corner um, our parliamentarians and they're unable to say anything outside of the status quo those examples are really difficult and i think that's a very good example where it goes wrong faye thank you very much rachel matthew and dave mcguire my producer but most of all thank you to you for listening please do if you are a Times subscriber and if you are not why not please do go to the times.co.uk slash comment central where you can sign up to this weekly podcast via itunes and also i'll post some of the articles that we've been discussing or that have appeared in the times recently as background until next week goodbye